This is the 10,000 Depositions Later podcast, Episode 2, Part 2. I'm Jim Garrity. The topic of this episode deals with tools for capturing testimony. In Part 1, we talked about the fact that in some situations, you might not want to take a deposition of a witness. You might want to take a confidential statement, which I refer to as an examination under oath or EUO, or you might want to use an affidavit. Now, my expertise is specifically in the area of depositions, but we never want to take depositions blindly. And there are some cases where something other than a deposition might suit your situation better. We talked in the first segment about depositions, pluses and minuses, and examinations under oath, or as insurance lawyers often refer to them, EUOs, pluses and minuses. In this part two, we'll talk about affidavits and specifically when to use them as a substitute for depositions. This podcast and my books are about depositions specifically, but there are other tools and you've got to make sure you're evaluating each of your cases for the best method for capturing testimony. So let's delve into the use of affidavits to capture testimony as an alternative to depositions and the pluses and minuses of doing so. I'll also offer some suggestions for deciding among the three options for pinning down a choice among the three, and I'll share some thoughts about opting to pass on depositions entirely. Affidavits, of course, are written statements signed by a witness about something specific. The statement, or affidavit, once it's signed by the witness under oath, becomes the witness's sworn testimony. In litigation, as you surely know, affidavits are almost always crafted by the attorney who needs it. The content of the affidavit is also mostly crafted by the lawyer, of course with input from the witness. But the drafting attorney always has a key role in shaping what the affidavit says and how it says it, and so must use great caution in that respect. Lay witnesses will sign affidavits that only loosely approximate what they actually know, perhaps unaware of the lawyer's objectives and perhaps unaware of the consequences to the affiant of not paying more attention to what the lawyer has them saying. Other than depositions, affidavits are the most common tool for documenting testimony. They are easy to draft, fast to produce, and cost virtually nothing. Unlike depositions, there is no waiting time between the creation of the content and receipt of the final product. Affidavits are especially convenient when you're up against a deadline, because you can draft the affidavit and file it all within the space of 30 minutes. The chief advantages of an affidavit are that they're fast and deadline-friendly, they cost nothing to prepare, you can get right to the point, and you can create as many as you need. It also avoids the hassles associated with scheduling and taking depositions. Chief disadvantages of an affidavit? Well, everyone knows you drafted them, and sometimes judges will hold affidavits to a tougher standard. If the affidavit does not clearly show that the affiant has personal knowledge And if the assertions are technically deficient, your affidavit might be stricken and leave a gaping hole in your proof. Now, when I say the affidavit, quote, may not clearly show the affiant has personal knowledge, close quote, I don't mean that you can satisfy this obligation by typing a sentence that simply says, the affiant has personal knowledge of all matters herein. It's not enough. The affidavit, the content, must provide enough information for the judge to determine that your affiant was actually in a position to have personal knowledge of the things that the affidavit talks about. 
And that's where many affidavits fail. An ambitious drafter will include a generic statement that the witness has personal knowledge, but then goes on to make broad, sweeping factual representations for which there is no hint elsewhere in the affidavit that the witness was actually in a position to know what the affiant has said. In fact, I routinely have my lawyers comb through affidavits when we receive them from adversaries looking for technical deficiencies exactly like that, where there's a broad, generic, sweeping statement at the front and nothing in between the sandwich that contains the actual assertions that the witness clearly would know from personal knowledge. Now, careless preparation of an affidavit can cause you other problems. Sometimes the urge to score evidentiary points can lead to the drafting of affidavits that contradict what the witness said in a deposition, which could have the effect of rendering your affidavit a nullity. Another common technical flaw is where the affidavit ends with a statement that the information is, quote, to the best of my knowledge and belief, close quote. Some courts have said this invalidates the entire affidavit. To the best of my knowledge and belief could mean that the affiant knows little or nothing because that's to the best of their knowledge and belief. So that kind of qualification can invalidate the entire affidavit. I could sign an affidavit that says, <laughs> to the best of my knowledge and belief, the Australian crocodile has the largest head. But I'm not saying that this is in fact true. I'm only telling you what I think, to the best of my knowledge, is true. That will not suffice in the world of affidavits. Judges want affiance to make unqualified, direct, factual statements because, number one, the evidence is more likely to be reliable, and number two, unequivocally false statements of fact allow a judge to hold the affiant liable for the misstatement. Assertions that are qualified to the best of my knowledge and belief clearly provide the affiant a way out, and judges don't want that. Finally, Another key risk in drafting affidavits is that the affiant might turn on you. This typically happens when a witness is confronted during cross-examination, either in a deposition or at trial, about the contents of the affidavit. That is, on some occasions, the first time the witness might have actually looked in detail at what they signed and begin to appreciate the liberties that the drafting attorney took. It's at that moment that the witness is likely to turn on you if you engaged in such behavior. Sometimes they'll do that even if you wrote exactly what they told you, if the witness thinks he or she can avoid the hot seat by blaming you. That, I would tell you, is an embedded flaw in all affidavits because it's almost always the lawyer who writes or types the word. So absent safeguards, authorship of an affidavit of someone else's, what's going to be someone else's sworn testimony, leaves you exposed to claims of coercion or threat. All right, so all three forms of capturing testimony have value and are useful. Which to choose just depends on the situation. So here are my general rules of thumb in choosing one form or another. But please do remember these are just general rules and circumstances may easily alter them. First, I use depositions when the witness is represented by counsel, will not cooperate with me, or is likely to be unavailable at trial. I use EUOs when the rules allow me to contact the witness directly, when the witness is friendly, and when I want to lock witnesses in without interference from opposing lawyers. And I use affidavits when I need to fill in a specific gap in my evidence, or when time is limited, or when I need to address a minor point by a minor witness for which the formality and expense of a deposition 
is just unnecessary and unwarranted. Okay, so what about opting to pass on a deposition? The reflexive and understandable instinct of many trial lawyers is to depose most or all disclosed witnesses. Certainly that's a safe path because you're less likely to be second-guessed by your client, your partner, your adjuster, if you depose everyone compared to a decision to pass on some witnesses and later learn that they had bombshell testimony against your client that you somehow missed. The fact is, though, that it's rare that a witness will have genuinely shocking testimony that you didn't know about or at least suspect before depositions began. You usually do know who the key witnesses are. You usually do know what witnesses will say, all things considered. So the risk of true, unexpected bombshell testimony from an undeposed witness is minimal. So think carefully about routinely deposing everyone who can be deposed just because you can. A superficial game plan can lead you to develop testimony that hurts you, or just as bad is a complete waste of time and money. All right, need some assurance that depositions aren't always necessary? Here's one of my favorite orders of all time about depositions from a federal judge where he points out that depositions aren't even allowed in federal criminal cases without court permission. The order rejected a civil trial lawyer's argument in an effort to take untimely depositions that denying them would amount to what the lawyer claimed was a, quote, due process violation, close quote. So the judge says, with something of a sharp pen. Finally, the defendant asserts that denying it the ability to depose the doctors will deny it due process. The assertion is both remarkable and clearly unfounded. For most of the nation's history, a party went to trial without deposing anyone. The federal rules of civil procedure took effect in 1938 and made depositions available in civil cases. In federal criminal cases, however, depositions still are not available, except that a party may depose a witness in, quote, exceptional circumstances, and he cites Federal Rule of Criminal Procedure 15. The judge goes on. The federal prisons are full of defendants who were convicted and sentenced without being afforded the right to depose a single witness. Some have been put to death. If, as the defendant asserts, a defendant in a civil case has a due process right to depose every person with knowledge, even if the person will not be called as a witness, then surely a defendant in a criminal case has a due process right to depose the government's actual witnesses. This would mean that every person in federal prison, or at least every person who went to trial, was unconstitutionally convicted. Just stating that proposition shows how expansive and clearly unfounded it is. The judge wrapped up with the following. There is no constitutional right to depose witnesses generally. Even more clearly, there is no constitutional right to depose persons who might or might not have relevant knowledge and who will not be called as witnesses. And even more clearly still, there is no constitutional right to depose such a person after the discovery deadline. The defendant's due process argument the judge ended is frivolous. So strong words from a federal judge and a federal judge who's been on the bench for many years. If you'd like a copy of that order, email me at jim at Jim Garrity Law and I'd be glad to send it to you. I think most civil trial lawyers are surprised to hear that criminal defendants have no right, none, in federal cases 
to depose witnesses. So that might factor into your analysis the next time you sit down to develop your discovery plan. All right, so I make a conscious decision in each case about who to depose and who to skip. I ask myself some of the following questions. Should I depose this witness? Is this someone whose testimony I need to prove an element of my case or of my defense? Someone whose story I need to lock down through a formal deposition before summary judgment or trial? Is it someone whose responses will help settlement? Someone who might be unavailable for trial? Someone whose willingness to testify favorably might fade over time? Or perhaps, is it someone that I need to see in person and run them through the ringer a little bit through some cross-examination to see how to handle them if the case goes to trial? Another question I ask myself when developing the deposition plan, should I avoid deposing this witness? Is this someone whose story is already committed on paper? Someone whose deposition will necessarily require me to disclose facts and lines of examination I might want to keep close to the vest right now? Is it someone who will learn from mistakes they make during the deposition who will become even more formidable at trial? And let me add this. If there's one thing I've learned after taking more than 20,000 depositions, it's that adversaries often misjudge the essence of my claims or my defenses when they only have the individual pieces, the interrogatory answers, the documents, other disclosures. The true shape of my case becomes apparent from my synthesis of the pieces, which often is revealed through my deposition examinations, the people I choose to question, and the questions I ask them. It's the synthesis of my thinking that's reflected in my questions. A box containing a 100-piece jigsaw puzzle contains 100 separate pieces of information, but it doesn't mean anything until it's largely assembled for the viewer to inspect. So it is with interrogatories, documents, and other disclosures. They're puzzle pieces. They're not the assembled or synthesized view. So I now pass on the deposition of witnesses where I'll gain little and reveal lots. Sometimes I don't need to dispose specific witnesses because I know what they'll say, and I would need to reveal too much to opposing lawyers in order to conduct an effective deposition. So don't be nervous about choosing an EUO or an affidavit. Much can be lost in your case from an indiscriminate deposition plan, one where you reflexively depose everyone just because that's what others would do. All right, let's wrap up. If you like the podcast, please leave a review wherever you get your podcasts, whether it's Apple, Spotify, Amazon, or somewhere else, and please leave a five-star rating. And if you'd like to receive future episodes as they're uploaded, please be sure to subscribe. Thank you again.